0: Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. Before we get started, standard disclaimer none of this is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And today on the show we have a notable investor
1: in the uranium space, Mr. Terry Papineau. Welcome to the program. Hi Jesse, thanks for the invitation and uh, greetings from uh, French River, uh, Ontario. Awesome.
0: So I want to talk about how you first got started in investing and what led you to the
1: uranium space. When I was younger, I was always interested in finding out, you know, how money works and, uh, you know, what what are stocks and what are bonds and how to get into that. And uh, when I was a bit younger, internet didn't exist at that time so unless you had someone close in your family or you took a course on that you know it it was it was it was not very accessible to me at the time i was introduced to investing through mutual funds in 1996 and i actually worked in that field for uh 5 6 years which which i really enjoyed and my primary method of investing at that time was through mutual funds but i got to watch and follow the markets and the different mutual funds and and the different types of mutual funds and different jurisdictions and all that so i i that's how i kind of got my first um my first taste of uh, an experience into investing and um in in 2015-16 i I had a little bit more time, where I was able to research this different sectors and, and and start to look at investing in, into stocks directly. And with the development of, of the internet, through that time, uh, different um, um, opportunities were available through different platforms on, on internet to to be able to open accounts and start investing on your own. And that and that's how I started. And uh, it, it, this actually coincided with the my, my foray into the uranium sector. Uh, as I mentioned, I was fo- I've been following the markets very closely since about 1995 uh, on a daily basis, just trying to see if there's patterns that that exist. And and I I, I actually was able to identify different patterns, and some of these patterns repeat themselves. And what? through my studies and, and and readings and and you know just i my style was value so trying to find something that you know was overlooked was uh was you know beaten down but but there, but were, there was something there it just wasn't recognized at the moment and one day i was listening to bloomberg news and this uh, analyst for a company was talking about chemicals and uh, I hadn't really been aware of the uranium sector. I knew I remembered the the, the bull market in two thousand six, two thousand seven, but the different companies I wasn't really aware at that time. And um, so he was talking about Cameco. This was in two thousand sixteen. Talking about how it was a great company. I had the, some of the best uranium assets in the world. Some of the richest mines. Great management. Great you know jurisdiction. Great everything. But for some reason, the stock was just beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. So that that really got, it piqued my curiosity, got my attention. And I started looking into, into chemical at that time. And that was my first investment into the uranium sector. Um, at the time as well, there was very little information available. Like uh, there was a few YouTube videos uh, you know you, you had to like chemical had a lot of great content on their site but you know content that's on the site of, of a company of course they're going to talk their own book but you know the the information they provided really painted a, a good picture of the supply demand scenario in the uranium sector and that's what that's what got me going and my first investment into uranium was into chemical. Uh, the supply deficit situation at the time, they painted a really good picture. And as time evolved, <clears throat> more and more information became available on YouTube. Uh, like, you know, there's Mike Alkin uh, was putting out content. Uh, there's videos from Nick Hodge at the time. Uh uh, Gwen Preston, the resource Maven, had done a couple of videos. Rick Rule was active, so that was my primary source of information at the time. And uh, then I got active into in, into Twitter, and uh, Quakes uh, ninety nine was was a very valuable so- and still is a very valuable source of information. And uh, you know the, that's that's how my my knowledge of the sector grew. And so that's how I got interested into investing and in, and specifically into uranium. Yes, and shout out to John Quakes, the godfather of
0: uranium on Twitter. Right. So uh, you've mentioned in the past that you're all in on uranium. It makes up all of your portfolio at the moment. Is that still the case? And if so, what gives you the conviction to to go all in on a sector like that?
1: You know, I, I just – I don't – I can't see any other sector at the moment that – that um, that is that has the fundamentals that uranium has and not only like were the fundamentals pretty good in 2016 although i was way too early you know at that time i thought it would be a 3 to 5 year trade and here we are now firmly into year 6 almost well yeah year 6 and uh, but you know throughout time throughout that period of time the the actual fundamentals have increased dramatically for for the better so, being being value investor and and uh, seeing that, you know, believing that there's no other sector that presents the, the you know this kind of opportunity, I'm extremely comfortable of being uh, you know, all in uranium. <clears throat> i've I've <clears throat> said many times I'm not a trader. People ask me, you know, are you in and out? No, I, I, I sometimes I will trim positions or, or or I will, you know, readjust my portfolio depending on on the different news and events. But uh, I'm still, uh, you know, 100 uh, percent uranium. So with that much conviction in this space, are there any bearish
0: scenarios you see for uranium? Is there a case where uranium maybe could not be this great
1: opportunity that you see it as? Well, I mean, the information would have to change, right? Uh, <clears throat> so, in, it, you know, in terms of the fundamentals, it's difficult to see in terms of fundamentals how that could change because it, it's it's just improving. I mean, in 2016, we didn't have all of this, you know, like kind of nuclear re- renaissance that, that we're seeing now or almost, uh, well, many countries are now saying that they're, you know, they're seeing the, you know, the, the, the writings on the wall, if if you want uh, carbon free base load 24 seven power, uh, you know, outside of hydro, um, nuclear is the best option. So, but there are there, there are, uh, you know, events that could occur that that would be very harmful to the sector. One of them being, um, you know, God forbid, uh, a, a nuclear incident or a nuclear accident. And we've seen the market kind of uh, skittish towards that. We had some news last June about something that happened in China, and for a period of about two weeks there, you know, the the our equities were were uh, were hurt by that. And then with the situation in Ukraine, uh, with the Chernobyl and and one of the nuclear power plants there, uh, you know, there were fighting around there, and there was a so that had an impact on the equities. So if there if there is a nuclear accident uh you know it would certainly be harmful to the equities uh but depending on what that accident is um it could be maybe just a short to mid term uh, you know pain there there is in my opinion the the largest uh the most significant bear market or bear situation event would be if uh, if China uh, or realized that uh, there, there's a flaw in the design of the reactors that they're mass building, and then they would ha- have to maybe put that program on on pause or on hold. To me, that is the the biggest risk uh, to this investment thesis. So how do you feel that the conflict in Ukraine
0: might play out in terms of the supply-demand fundamentals of uranium? You know, Russia plays a big role in the enrichment of uranium. They also produce a lot. Um, and I believe recently the Biden administration said they were going to allocate, I think it was $3.4 billion or, or some fairly decent number of uh, of capital towards, you know, domestic uranium production and enrichment. Do you think there'll be further sanctions against Russia, first of all? And I mean, you look at Kazakhstan, the world's largest produce, producer, which is closely allied with Russia, um, Uzbekistan as well as a huge producer. Um, do you see sanctions coming down the line in the uranium industry? And if not, do you still think that that, that conflict will play a role in terms of uh, the, the uranium industry
1: as a whole? Well, we're seeing the conflict having an impact, a huge impact on the sector already. So it's not a, it's not a question of, do I think? We're seeing it live. <clears throat> and in order to understand the impact, we need to go back to the supply um, demand fundamentals. For, demand for uranium comes from the nuclear industry. And uh, so nuclear reactors being quite expensive to build uh, it's logic to to understand that most of the reactors are, are exist in the richer countries, which are normally associated with West with with the Western part of the world and Europe. And uh, if you look at just the United States, for example, out of the, they have um, I think it's 91 um, nuclear reactors that are operating right now. So out of the 440 nuclear reactors in the world. They, they have about 20, 22% of those reactors just in the United States. So, uh, so and, and, and to understand that demand, so let's just take the United States, for example. Um, so they, uh, there's, a, there's the um, uh, Russian suspension agreement there, where for, for a period of time, uh, the US banned Russian uh, imports of uranium And uh, so there was an agreement that that was formed that called the Russian suspension agreement to allow the nuclear reactors in the United States to import 20% of their needs from Russia. So the biggest consumer of uranium in the world, you know, um, is obtaining 20% of their material, which is cheaper from Russia, Russia controlled entities. And that includes uh, yellow cake itself it includes the conversion um, part of the fuel cycle it also uh, cont- uh, means the enrichment part of the fuel cycle so the the announcement that you just talked about uh, which was this week uh, the you know a uh, tuesday i believe um, so the biden administration is now seeing <clears throat> that you know either sanctions will occur or uh, the utilities themselves are self-sanctioning. In other words, they're trying to find other uh, means to uh, of, of obtaining the, the supply that they need. So they're announcing, like you said, between three and four, close to $4 billion to be able to uh, obtain domestically produced material. And that's uh, even before that announcement, that was, you know, the self-sanctioning, uh, the U.S. utilities were already looking at domestic or, or friendly producers to obtain their material. One of the companies that I'm invested in, Energy Fuels, uh, uh, Mark Chalmers, the CEO, announced on a Crux interview um, last week or a couple of weeks ago that you know their phone is ringing now. They've they've signed three contracts with two uh, different utilities in the United States to procure their material. So. It is having an impact uh, on the demand side. Now, let's look on the supply side. The world's largest producer of Uranium is Kazatomprom. They produce about 40% of, uh, of yellow cake. And a lot of that material is sent to Russia for conversion and enrichment. When you look at the, uh, Russia, the, uh, the Uranium fuel cycle, it starts with you know taking Uranium out of the ground, processing it and obtaining a yellow powder called yellow cake that yellow cake is then converted into uf6 which is a gas then that gas is then enriched so that pellets and fuel rods can be fabricated to go into the into the nuclear reactors well russia controls around 40% of the conversion and the enrichment capability in the world and it's a low cost um provider of those services so <clears throat> So now that, uh, you know, with Russia's aggression on Ukraine, uh, you know, the world, the Western world is now alienating, they're they're looking at alienating themselves from Russia and possibly Russian controlled um, companies and entities and countries. So that may have an impact on Kazatomprom. Uzbekistan is also a pretty large producer of uranium. Russia produces a bit of uranium but they control a good portion of the conversion enrichment uh capabilities so it is having an impact and i think that impact will be f- uh felt for a long time so you know it's like the everything is is realigning everything is shifting and this is also you know what i was talking about in terms of uh you know how the the fundamentals in the sector are are improving just by the day. Unfortunately, you know, nobody wants to see what's going on in Ukraine right now, and everyone hopes that that's going to be resolved quickly and that Russia will be punished for it. They deserve to be. Uh, but on the investment side, uh, it's it's turned out to be, um, you know, having an impact on, on our investment thesis. So how do you personally approach investing in uranium these days?
0: You mentioned you started off with Cameco. That was your first Play in the uranium space. Do you still prefer the the producers? Do you like developers, explorers,
1: physical uranium funds, or is it a mix of all of those for you? Right now, it's mostly uh, developers and explorers. So I started out. <clears throat> excuse me. Started out with Chemical, which is probably the blue chip uh, with Kaz- Kazatomprom in in the uranium sector. Like I said, very very uh, good company, well managed. Outstanding assets. They they have two of the most uh, richest mines in the world, out of any commodity, and um, so that that's how I started. As my knowledge uh, in the sector um, increased and improved, I, I started expanding into developers and um, and again as that knowledge improved, I, I shifted away from uh, producers. I uh, kept a few developers, and the majority of my portfolio is now into explorers. The reason for that is because my uh, tolerance for risk, as you can imagine, is is pretty high. Uh, and when I say invest, um, let's let's be clear with regards to the spe- the speculator, uh, the explorers, it's speculation. Uh, they're trying to find something, There's, the risk is extremely high, the chances of them finding something is pretty low, uh, they, they might find something, but will it be a deposit that's big enough and that has the, actu- the actual, um, all of the different technical factors that can be developed into a mine, and even, even if it is, you know, that process can be extremely long. But if they do find a deposit, uh, that the, the returns can be quite uh, fantastic, especially in a, in a bull market. Um, so what I did is <clears throat> I moved away from the producers. Uh, and the reason for that is I'm, I'm looking for a higher return. Uh, my appetite for risk, as I've mentioned, is, is quite high. And um, if you look at, <clears throat> there's there's a readily available sprot. Uh, Sprott report that was prepared in um, in February of 2007, and uh, so you just need to you know Google Sprott 2007 uranium, and you'll find that report. And they <clears throat> did it. They did an analysis of the uranium sector at that time, and and we all know what happened in from 2003 to 2007, where the price of uranium went from nine dollars a pound to 138 dollars a pound. And uh, the returns of Uranium companies at at that time were phenomenal. So when they did that report in February 2007, the price of Uranium at the time was $70 a pound. And they have uh, an analysis uh, of about uh, 20, 25 companies, producers, developers, and explorers. Some of those companies, you won't even recognize the names anymore. They don't exist or they've been sold to other companies or morphed into another company. And you look at the the market caps of of the some of the explorers in there that you have never even heard of before and they don't like I said they don't exist anymore and you're looking at 200 300 400 500 some of, some of them 900 million market caps. That's in 2007 when there was way less money in the markets. Uh, you know right now, now it's more than 15 years ago and that's when the price of uranium was at $70 a pound. And Sprott was predicting that by the end of the year, they thought that the the price of uranium could hit $100 a pound. In July of that year, it it hit, as we know, a peak of $138 a pound, let's call it $140 a pound. And the valuations of those companies must have increased dramatically because the spot price in that period of time doubled. So it's safe to assume that those market caps that I was mentioning at 200, 300, 400, 600, 900 million must have doubled at least in that period of time as well, if not more. And so I was looking at, you know, from 2017 to, you know, I was looking at market caps of these explorers at 8 million, 10 million, 15 million, 20, 30 million, $40 million dollars and i was looking at the you know the the bagger the the possible baggers that i could get so you know if the thesis is right and, and the price does see a spike again then i think it's reasonable to assume that the the market caps of these companies should at least hit what they were in February of 2007 when uranium was $70 a pound. So they should at least get to two, three, four, five hundred, six hundred million 500, $600 million. And these are companies that didn't have deposits at the time. They were just, you know, uranium companies. And and most of them were, were what I call uh, BS companies. And uh, mm-hmm. so, so, um, you know, I, I, so that's, that's kind of what, Helped me form my strategies. Okay, let me let me put some of my money into developing companies, uh, developers. In in so I have two developers in the states. I have two developers in Africa, and the rest of my portfolio is in seven to eight, around eight explorers that are positioned in the Athabasca Basin. And 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 my rationale here is that most of these uh, explorers should attain you know, uh, 200, 300, 400, 500 million market caps at some point in time in this Uranium bull market, which from now is still like three to five to six baggers from now. If one of them, just one of them, you know, uh, is fortunate enough to hit a deposit uh, that is is noteworthy and that's could be mineable or or and that, that that could and the company could be sold you know something like 100 million like in two th- at that point in time in 2007 deals were made for $10 uh, a pound in the ground so you know if a company can can find a deposit of 100 million pounds well at 2007 prices you know that was worth a billion dollars. The market cap of that company would have been sold for a billion dollars. So these, so that was sort of that's my strategy. Uh, the developers are are good quality developers. Uh, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of money in that market. Those companies do well. Um, you know, so my my kind of my home run possibility speculation is if one of these explorers. Can can find something valuable, then that's going to be a home run. And if not, then I'm referring to my reference is 2007 when the price of uranium was seventy dollars a pound. You know, they should hit three, four, 500 million market caps, which is still three to six to seven baggers from here. So that that's basically my strategy in the in the sector. So what would you say to somebody who's maybe
0: newer to the space, who's you know, heard the thesis, who understands that uranium, the, the supply-demand fundamentals and sees the nuclear renaissance happening all over the world, you know, nuclear reactors being built all over um, China alone has like 150 they're planning to build coming up here. Um, what's the best way to enter the space in your opinion? Is it through something like an ETF, like the URNM or HURA in Canada, or is it the Sprott Physical Uranium
1: Trust what, wh- or maybe big producers? How, how would you play it for somebody who's new to the space? Well, I, I get a lot of uh, direct messages and and sometimes I even you know have uh, phone conversations and and then through conversations people ask me and 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 uh, on that note I'd like to shout out to uh, Stéphane in Beaumont Quebec a new a new uranium investor um, so no I, I don't my my strategy is is like it's speculation and it, you have to have tolerance for, for very high risk and uh, not everybody has that so. Um, so my so for someone just starting out with less knowledge in the space, the uh, the ETFs are the way to go. Uh, so you know sprinkle a little, uh, money depending on like if you want to invest on the New York Stock Exchange, then URNM is the way to go on the Canadian, and then it's HURA and also uh, a, a, a portion in in SPOT, like the Sprout Physical Uranium Trust and. Um, I also like uh, the Uranium Royalty Corporation. I think that also offers like a different, uh, you know, a, a different uh, investing opportunity uh, with a little less risk. So uh, that's that's that would be my advice to someone starting out. If you do want to, um, you know, uh, go directly into equities, then it would be maybe a, a producer or or a higher quality developer. Um, chemical is, is like, to me, it's, it's a, it's a good one. It's going to pay dividends. Uh, they've got cash, you know, so that would be a good one if you want to go with the equity route, but, uh, just starting out the ETFs, a combination of the ETFs and, uh, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Well, thank you, Terry. This has been an amazing
0: conversation. I've learned so much. I'm sure everybody listening has as well, uh, for viewers
1: who want to hear more from you, where can they find you online? Well, I, I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter at Terry Pepino two. Uh, that's basically the the best way to to communicate with me. You can direct message me, and uh, I, I respond to those who uh, direct message me. Great. Well, thank you so much, and look forward to having you on in the future to continue the conversation. Looking forward to it, Jesse. Have a great day.
0: Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.